Resurrection, a show from Afro Solo and San Francisco Recovery Theater, presented by HWMS Audio Theater. This story is called Resurrection. Resurrection because we are resurrecting history so that we never forget. My great aunt Ethel was my favorite aunt. She was my grandmother's sister and boy was she a pistol. Ethel used to talk fast and had a smile in the corner of her mouth that looked like she knew the punchline to a private joke that she just kept waiting for me to catch on to. I loved her because she had one of those loud laughs. <laughs> hey, boy. Oh, Ethel was something. I listened to her talk, and I can hear her right now. She loved racehorses, and she loved men. She had a voracious sexual appetite. It was known. I'm not telling anybody any secrets. Ethel used to always talk to me. She would go on about her horse racing, and she used to tell me, Jeffrey, if you want to catch a winner, it's got to be black. The knees have got to be tight and look for those muscles. If you can see the muscles in the, in the legs around the knees, that's a winner. That's what you got. You want one of those. Now, I never knew whether she was talking about horses or men. She had the same enthusiasm. And between her and my grandmother is how I found out about my great, great, great grandmother, Sylvie. Sylvie was an infant had just finished suckling from her mother's breast. When the slave owner came along and snatched her from her mother's arms and sold her to another plantation owner in another county, never to be seen again. It was said that she had several siblings, although we'll never know. Many years later, Sylvie was on this plantation and the plantation owner lined up all of his property his horses, his cows, his chickens, his pigs, his farm equipment, and of course, all of his slaves. And he stood out in front of everyone and he pulled out a little piece of paper and he said, this here paper is from the government. It's what they call an emancipation proclamation. It says here that y'all Negroes is free. I don't know what y'all gonna do, but you're free. They ain't already gave me the money for y'all, so it's okay. You want to stay, that's okay. We can work it out. But you're on free to go if you want to go. And a lady leaned down and whispered into Sylvie's ear and said, baby, you're six years old. Did you know that? That's the only way she knew how old she was. I also have a great, great, great grand uncle, Injun Joe. They call him that because he had a penchant from running away from the plantation and living with the Indians. He hated that plantation, ran away every chance he got. Well, the story goes that Joe had ran away from the plantation. He was running through the swamplands of lower Alabama, and the slave catchers with the horses and the hounds were not on his trail, chasing him through the mud. He could feel him getting closer. He saw a log laying there, a hollow log, and he jumped and he hit it. They were so close that Joe could feel the ground shake every time the horses would jump over this log. Well, he must have got away because it said that Joe would show up for dinner every now and then. And when he did, he brought his tomahawk, a symbol of his freedom. We don't know whatever became of him. 
I'm also the great-grandson of great-grandmother Washington. Her first name was Laura, Laura Washington. Great-grandmother Washington had 10 kids, one of which was my grandmother and her sister, Ethel. Great-grandmother Washington was so light that I thought for sure she was white. For years, I just assumed she was white. It was never a doubt until I got older and Ethel and my grandmother sat me down and explained to me that she was light because she was the product of one of the many plantation rapes. The story goes that the owner of the plantation was called away to war, and so he left his wife and his son in charge. The son was in his early 20s, and as we know, the nights were long and the winters were cold. And the young man was, was doing what young men do. And he would wander down to the slave quarters and, and have his way, because, of course, he was the master now. One of his favorite stops, apparently, was Sylvie's place. Well, it wasn't too long before Sylvie was pregnant, and the boy's mother found out, and boy, was she hot as fish grease. That woman came parading down from the big house, demanding to find out who had enticed her son into this illicit affair. And she was going to prove that this child was wrong, that they were just trying to put a baby on her child. Well, that woman took one look at the baby, and her whole demeanor changed. She realized that that was her granddaughter. Well, she confronted Sylvie and told her, what we're going to do is we're going to take this baby, I'm going to take her and raise her in a big house as white because she's so light, nobody ever know. But you know, Sylvie had another thought on her mind. She told the woman, I birthed her, I'll raise her. Now, had Sylvie acquiesced to this woman's demands, her life probably would have been considerably easier, as would have been the child's. But that wasn't how Sylvie was brought up, and that wasn't what her principles were about. And when Mother's Day comes around, that's what I think about. I'm also the grandson of Henry Greer. This is my grandfather on my father's side out of Birmingham, Alabama. And he and my grandmother met and, of course, married. Henry Greer was a brakeman. They worked on the railroad and was known to be a shrewd businessman and was also a member of the Masons way back then. But in the Great Migration from the South to the North, my grandparents decided it was probably greener pastures if they went to the new land of Detroit, Michigan. They bought a house, and they moved in, and one of the most favorite things that my brother and I would do when we would go over to our grandparents' house was, of course, rummage through the drawer that was in the den underneath the TV. We call that the everything drawer. The everything drawer had everything in it. You know, old army men, thimbles, needle thread, junk, just stuff. Just a bunch of stuff. And it was always the same. Why are you kids playing in the drawer? Put all that stuff back and go downstairs. We put all the stuff back and we go down into the basement, which was our actual goal. Because you see, the basement contained all of my grandfather's beer bottles. He had hundreds of them piled up. You know, those brown, long neck, smelly things that have been sitting there for weeks and months. He also had a snow shovel right there where it looked like he'd been shoveling the beer bottles into the corner like snow. But this was a physical description of my grandparents' lifestyle. You see, his beer bottles sat directly juxtaposed to my grandmother's wall of pickles. So after you got through looking at all those smelly beer bottles and trying to stand there and count them all, 
We looked on the floor and it was as if somebody drew a line down the middle of the basement. And on the other side was a manicured, clean, pristine floor. You could eat off the floor. And then there was a wall of pickles on bookcases. Each pickle had their own label. Each one never had dust on it, ever. Didn't matter when we came, there was never dust. She pickled everything, you know, okra, green tomatoes, cucumbers, watermelon rinds. The flavors were exquisite and distinct, as clear as a musical note. Now, I like to pickle watermelon the best because it was sweet and tangy, not tart and dill like those pickled green tomatoes and, and that okra. According to my father, when my grandfather moved north, he had been known in the South as a respected businessman. However, he lost all his contacts when he moved to Detroit. And he soon became depressed and began to drink. My grandmother would tell me all the time, oh, those bottles, he's saving those bottles because he's going to take and get some money for them. We never saw any of them leave. <laughs> all it did was get bigger. My grandfather took me on, a, on an adventure one time. I didn't know where we were going. My grandmother left him in charge of me, and I could see him looking out the window anxiously as she drove off. Whereupon he immediately turned to me and said, hey, son, let's go take a walk. What's going to be an adventure? Okay. So we went out the back door, down the stairs, across the field that was in the back, walked across a little creek. Of course, I had to stop and look at the crayfish. He was patient, and we continued walking. To me, it seemed like it was hours. Probably wasn't any more than 20 minutes. But we were walking on the side of a dirt road, and then we got to walk in the street. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was seven years old, all I ever heard about when I walked in the street was, get out of that street, boy, don't you want to get run over? So it was a thrill. I felt like a big guy to be able to walk in the street. We walked in the street. I was proudly walking with my grandfather, but I was getting tired. I said, where, where are we going? You know the old adage, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And he said, almost. And I looked up. And there was a railroad track that we were getting ready to cross. And over on the right side, across on the other side of the road, was a dirt shack. He said, that's where we're going. And I said, an outhouse? We've walked all this way to go to an outhouse? He said, just you wait. So we got there, walked slowly up the stairs. I was really trying to understand where Granddad was coming from at this point. But the open the door, music, laughter, smells and love spilled out the front. It enveloped me like a warm comforter. Couldn't believe it. We were in there, he's taking me to a club. It was my first club. My grandfather had taken me to a juke joint. We walked in, went to the left. There was a little bar, had about four stools on it. And he pulled up one, ordered himself his favorite, a black label, long neck beer. And he ordered me a root beer fizzies. Now, I know you kids don't know what a fizzies is, so Google it and take a look. To put it in some water, and it had a head just like a beer. So I thought I was big time. I was looking around like one of the fellas. It was amazing. People were laughing. Music was playing on the jukebox. Everybody was clinking glasses and acting like they enjoyed life, something I hadn't seen in a long, long, long time, all of my seven years. I looked around, and there was a woman with a very short dress and a very low top and had a lot of makeup on. But she seemed to know everybody. She was sitting on everybody's lap, laughing and giggling and carrying on. And so I said, Granddad, is that the owner? He said, no, son, she, she just works here. He quickly changed the subject. I'm sure we can all presume what her occupation was. 
She seemed to be loved by everyone and she seemed to love everyone. It was a great time. I'll never forget it. It wasn't too long after that. I was still seven. I believe the year was 1961 when I came home from school and my grandmother and mother were sitting in the car crying. And they explained to me that my grandfather was the victim of a hit and run. I didn't understand what they meant when they said hit and run. And they explained to me that he was walking down a dirt road near some railroad tracks. And it was at night and a car had hit him and kept going. Well, I instinctively knew where he was coming from and probably what state of mind he was in at the time. But I, I couldn't tell my grandmother because I know that our walk, our adventure was supposed to be a secret. It was supposed to be between me and him. So I felt guilty for years as if it was my fault for not telling him. It was probably around these years, I was still seven, that I believe I had my first memorable racial experience. We were at my grandmother's house, and I'm sure it was for Thanksgiving because everybody was there. My great-grandmother Washington, all nine of her kids, people were laughing and joking and having a good time. And of course, the, the black and white TV was going in the den. And I was upstairs playing with my sister and brother and one of my cousins. And all of a sudden, I heard my grandmother squealing. You know, that grandmother scream, the one of joy and excitement. There's a colored man on TV. It's a colored man on TV. I ran downstairs to see what all the excitement was. And I looked at the black and white TV in the den and I looked at my grandmother. In my mind, I thought that maybe they had gotten one of those new colored TVs. But I told my grandmother she must be mistaken because you can never say they were wrong because I don't see any colors on that man. And the room fell silent. And the adults started mumbling amongst each other. Well, I mean, somebody's got to tell the boy. I mean, but they, we, what we're going to do? I mean, you, you got to tell him. My grandmother looked embarrassed and looked at all the other adults. And she grabbed me and hustled me up to the bedroom and was getting ready to tuck me in for bed and brought out the famous quilt. You know, the quilt that they bring out when they're getting ready to have a long conversation. And she slowly unfolded the quilt and explained to me that it was the complexion of the man that was on TV that was the purpose of all the commotion. You see, the show was Ed Sullivan's show, and the man on TV was Sammy Davis Jr. I am the son of Dr. William H. Greer, one of the nation's few black psychiatrists in the 1960s and co-author of Black Rage. This is a documentary that delivered the black experience to the general public from academic and psychiatric perspective. This book validated the experience of Black Americans and gave white America a chance to understand the frustration and anger of the 1960s civil rights Black power movement. Of course, when I was young, I didn't, I didn't realize how rare it was to, to see or be a Black psychiatrist in the African-American community in the 1960s. In fact, it was rare by any standard. It's even rare today. Just try to find one. Just try to find a Black psychiatrist. The book later became required reading, not only in high school, but college as well. My father went on tours, went all over the country. It was an incredible experience, but I was so young, I didn't care. Yeah, that's nice, you got a book, but can we go to Disneyland? I am forever grateful for the historic, social, and academic breadcrumbs left for me that turned into torches to light the path of life he knew I must travel. 
My first experience using drugs was in 1967. I was in high school. It was me and my best friend, Fred. We also had another friend. He got in trouble during the summer and his parents sent him to Israel to live on a kibbutz. Apparently, this is a Jewish tradition. I guess the actual translation is a communal settlement, typically kind of like a farm. Joel brought back blocks of hashish about the size of cigarette packs, each one in his backpack. Back then, they didn't check kids as they came back from overseas. We thought we were so hip and cool. It was great. The only issue we had is where are we going to find a parent-free zone to smoke this shit? We finally concluded that the best option was my best friend Fred's older sister's girlfriend, Alice. Now, Alice lived two houses down. The only reason that we concluded that Alice was a likely candidate was we were upstairs when we heard Alice's mother and Fred's mother talking at the kitchen table about Alice getting in trouble for smoking weed with one of her boyfriends. Light bulb went off and we knew this was it. So we paraded down to Alice's house. Fortunately, she was home. We told her what we had. She said, well, fellas, come on up. We went up to the attic, which was her room. She locked the door. We set up our incense. We lit some candles. We pulled the blinds on the window, made up a makeshift strobe light. And then we put on the hippest, coolest, psychedelic music we could possibly think of. It was 20 minutes long. I'm... Oh, I can't tell you the feelings. I was already enthralled because she was an older woman. I mean, you know, she just turned 18 and we were 16. And she was getting high with us as we listened to Time by the Chambers Brothers. Well, with each hit, the incense was smelling stronger. The strobe light was strobing more. The candles were burning brighter. The music was beginning to feel as though it was going inside of our bodies. Alice's titties were getting bigger and bigger. It was beautiful. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Also probably one of the worst because I spent the rest of my days trying to replicate that same feeling. In 1970, I was forcibly relocated to California from Detroit for my own safety. And boy, was that an eye-opening experience. After surviving the Detroit riot in 1968, I walked into the University of California Berkeley campus to see white kids protesting in what they called a riot, all while being pelted with rubber bullets, police officers hollering at them with bullhorns. This was very surreal to me, almost comical, as I had just left a city full of the National Guard in full military gear, tanks patrolling the streets at all hours. 50 caliber machine guns firing indiscriminately. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but a 50 caliber machine gun will shake your liver from a block away. During my new California residency, I went from heroin to LSD, from hashish to marijuana, and I drowned myself in cheap wine the whole time. Through it all, I managed to enroll in Merritt Junior College while it was still on Adeline Street in Oakland during the last years before the Black Panther Party birthplace was disassembled. 
Now, I don't know whether it was a conscious decision or divine intervention, but I became disenchanted with my new lifestyle. And I went on a self-improvement campaign spurred on by my minimal reading I'd done on Huey Newton, Bobby Steele, and Malcolm X. I enrolled in San Francisco State, determined not to become apathetic cannon fodder. After a long, circuitous path, I managed to graduate with a degree in psychology in 1977 and entered the job market all while floating on a haze of weed and alcohol. As you can imagine, my first night in jail was the result of me being drunk in front of my own apartment building in the Fillmore in San Francisco, a black neighborhood in San Francisco, during what they called the zebra man sweeps. And of course, I was swept up. I think it's only proper that we understand that the zebra man was called that because of their camouflage. It was theoretically a radical arm of the black Muslim sect. We don't know. We just know that there were bands of armed uh, individuals roaming the Fillmore, killing white people indiscriminately. For those that don't remember, the 1970s were turbulent years in San Francisco. We had the Zodiac on his murderous spree, armed radicals, prison breaks, assassinations were all common. With the Black Panther Party, the Weathermen, the Black Liberation Army were constantly on the news. But when the Symbionese Liberation Army snatched Patty Hearst and morphed her into a soldier of the people and she robbed that bank, oh boy, we thought nothing could top that. Yet even people who lived through those scary times rarely talk about it, including mayor-to-be Art Agnos, who survived one of the zebra man attacks himself. Now, why was I drunk at the time? Who knows? I just remember the whole experience being one of the events that started me thinking about getting clean. My arrest led to a memorable two-week stay at 850 Bryant, the San Francisco City Jail, also known as a Cross Bar Hotel, where I met a Black reincarnation of Humphrey Bogart. This guy was Bogart to a T. He even had the hat. I don't know how he got the hat in jail. Dude kind of walked me through the process of doing short time. I didn't know that he was really in the process of grooming me for being his outside ears and eyes. There were so many of us waiting to be processed after our court date, it took two weeks. Generally, something that only takes 24 hours. That's how many black men had been rounded up in the sweeps to find the zebra man killers, as they were called. I was released on my own recognizance. There were a lot of things going on in my life, even before I went to my first treatment program. I was a human garbage can. I mean, I used whatever was immediately available, crack, powder, cocaine, weed, alcohol, etc. I just wanted to get high. I was a suit-wearing drunk that worked in the financial district of San Francisco, and I just knew I was impervious. In 1985, I started treatment from alcohol after meeting my future wife and future mother of my son. I came home drunk one night, and she wouldn't let me in unless I promised to go into treatment, which I did. In 1985, I checked in to Garden Sullivan Hospital on Gary Street, one of the few places that was a treatment hospital. I managed to give up alcohol, however, it would be several more years before I could finally free myself of crack. That took place in 1993. During my tenderloin exploits, 
I spent a lot of time at Glide Church and not just to catch a quick meal. Reverend Cecil Williams, the minister, had started a new program to combat the crack pandemic that was sweeping the nation. A few of my comrades and myself became generation number one of Glide's Facts on Crack. In collaboration with the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, Glide's Facts on Crack program became the first to address crack addiction specifically. I later founded and established San Francisco Recovery Theater in 2000, a program designed to address the recovery needs of artists, musicians, performing artists, and their families. The blessing of sobriety is a gift that each day I'm thankful for, and only someone that has been to hell and back would understand. Life has a funny way of collecting on unpaid debts. Once the creator has determined you're strong enough to handle it, my wife passed in 2011, a victim of pimp cancer. My father passed in 2015, a victim of pimp cancer. And my mother passed in 2017, a victim of advanced dementia. I often think of my mother's path. In short, she was a miracle baby. She was born prematurely in the early 1920s and black, which left her with little hope to survive. The doctor threw the newborn into the corner of the room in an effort to save the mother. Enter a black superwoman in a nurse's uniform. Nurse Mitchell scooped up the newborn made an incubator out of a shoebox, a light bulb, and blankets, nursed this newborn until she was strong enough to eat and breathe on her own, all while keeping her a secret in the linen closet. This was a true resurrection because mom was truly at death's door, and consequently, I was expendable. So oftentimes when I think of Mother's Day, as I mentioned earlier, these are the women I think of. This is the circumstance under which I came up under. And this is why Resurrection is an appropriate title for this story. I'm blessed to be able to leave a trail of breadcrumbs myself that will turn into a guiding light for my son as he finds his footing in the world as we know it today. You've been listening to Resurrection, written and performed by Jeffrey Greer. It was produced by Afro Solo and San Francisco Recovery Theater, with assistance from HWMS Audio Theater. I'm your stage manager. It was good to have you in the audience. We'll see you next time.